0: When you read a story, you identify with its most relatable characters, which is only natural. And that means when you read the Bible, you're going to relate most to all the human characters. That makes sense, because you are a human. But you must not fall into the trap of thinking the Bible is about these human characters. It's not. It's about God. You get into trouble, though, when you elevate the human characters of Scripture beyond their place and focus too much on them. Classic example of this is David and Goliath. Most read that passage, come away thinking it's telling us something about David and, and his greatness. And while we certainly should emulate David's faith, that passage in reality is telling us something about David's God. This is the type of deliverance God can accomplish through his servants who trust him all the way. And that's why we would say God should get all the glory for that day, not David. But some people can't help focusing more of their attention and adoration on the human characters. You see this in the New Testament, I think in particular with Mary. This is Advent season, which means around Christmas time, these these thoughts come back to the front of our mind. And while we say Jesus is the reason for the season, there are some who in reality prove more devoted to Mary. You see this, of of course, most in the Catholic Church. And really, talk about missing the point of Scripture. When you read the New Testament, Mary, she actually barely shows up. She's mentioned a few dozen times, almost always in connection with the birth story of Jesus. Did you know Mary is spoken of more in the Quran than in the Bible? And whenever Mary does show up, though she has great faith, she's never the main point or the main character. The Lord used her profoundly to give birth to the incarnate Son of God, and we praise God for that. But it's just that. We, we praise God for that. Mary herself said she's just but a humble bondservant of the Lord. We're not to read the Christmas story in scripture and bow down to Mary. But all of her praise belongs to the Lord. But again, the Catholic Church has missed this mark by a mile. Just by way of introduction, over the centuries, they've basically reproduced the majesty of Jesus as Savior in Mary. Mary was given her own miraculous birth story known as the Immaculate Conception. That's not about Jesus. It's about her. And it's where Mary herself was conceived in her mother's womb, free from the stain of original sin. Mary was also given her own near divine personhood. They teach her perpetual virginity, that she remained a virgin forever, being so holy. And then Mary was also sinless, And granted, Scripture never says or even suggests any of this, but they reason that Mary had to be sinless, being the mother of Jesus. And because of her perfection, Mary did not die. This is known as the assumption of Mary, where she was taken bodily directly to heaven. She passed uh, escaping death, was taken straight to heaven, and was, quote, exalted by the Lord as queen over all things, end quote, says the Catholic Catechism. This is one of the reasons Catholics refer to Mary as the queen of heaven. And speaking of, they've also given to her many near divine titles and names. She's the queen of heaven. She's the blessed mother. She's the cause of our salvation. She's the mother of God. Kind of sounds like they've elevated Mary to the role of savior along with Jesus. And that's precisely the point. Near divine work has been attributed to Mary as well. And Catholics are are currently thinking about making a fifth dogma about Mary where they would declare her to be a a co-redemptrix and mediatrix with the Lord. That just means she, it's another way of saying she's co-redeemer and co-intercessor along with her son, Jesus. They might say there's only one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, and there's only one way to salvation through Jesus, but who will mediate between you and Jesus, Only his mother has his ear, and so you better go through the queen of heaven if you want to get to Jesus. And that's why in reality, Catholics pray to Mary about 10 times more than they pray to God or Jesus. Just in the course of praying the rosary, they'll pray to God and Jesus five times each, but they'll pray to Mary 50 times. And the whole rosary ends with a prayer called, Hail, Holy Queen. To Mary. All in all, Catholics might say they don't worship Mary, but that's something we call doublespeak. When you take all the language and acts of worship and you attribute them to a person, you are effectively worshiping that person. And that's what Catholics give to Mary from prayers to pilgrimages, lighting candles to bowing down, singing songs to creating icons and relics and there's no doubt that Mary possesses the hearts of some people far more than the Lord. None of this is to suggest that we as Christians are to denigrate Mary. We show her honor. Mary and Joseph both have their place in the Faith Hall of Fame. They're worthy examples of amazing faith and obedience to God. But God still gets all the glory for this because apart from His grace, they'd be nothing. None of us would be anything. That's why we say glory to God alone. And if you didn't know, that was the ultimate rallying cry of the Reformation. The Protestants who broke away from the Catholic Church were trying to recapture what the Bible alone actually taught about salvation. And and their rallying cry was that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. This is based on scripture alone, but on top of all this, this is all to the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. We can thank God for faithful servants, but we must never elevate any man or woman to the place of the Lord in our hearts. Where are we going with this? Well, this morning... As we come together to study scripture, we arrive at the birth story of Jesus. We learn about the virgin birth of the Messiah. And it's an unparalleled miracle. And we see the huge role Mary and Joseph played in God's plan. Chances are you you have a nativity set up in your house right now. And there's a little Mary and there's a little Joseph. They're worthy to remember for their great faith in God and their total obedience But may you never forget, this nativity scene is not about Mary. It's not about Joseph. It's not about the angels. It's entirely about the Lord. And Matthew records the birth story of Jesus, not to make some point about Mary or Joseph. He records this to say something about the God of Mary and Joseph and his son, Christ Jesus, who is coming into the world. As we started to learn last week, it's in the birth of Jesus that God, the father's plan to redeem mankind was coming to fulfillment. This plan was literally thousands of years in the making. And now God was finally confirming his word as true. His promise had come and had come in the person of this child, Jesus. This Christ was born of a woman. Yes. He's the son of man. But he was more, he was also a son of God, literally born of God. And I know we here probably take that fact for granted, but it's so important to grasp that the coming of Jesus represented the revelation of the glory of God in human form. His incarnation was the revelation of the glory of God in, in human form. And that fact informs the meaning of this text as was well the meaning of Christmas, We have certainly made Christmas a very man-centered holiday. Just the other day, Noah, who's five, very astutely questioned, if if Christmas is Jesus' birthday, why do we give gifts to each other? But the coming of Christ was all about the coming of the glory of God. And your remembrance of Christmas, similarly, must not be about the glory of man, but the glory of God. Is this not, when you think about it, the binding theme to all the accounts of Christ's birth. Think about this. Do you remember how Zacharias and Simeon both responded to the Messiah's coming? Luke says they both blessed the Lord God of Israel. They praised God. How did Mary herself respond? Luke 1.46, she said, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. She didn't praise herself. She praised God. How did the angels respond? Luke 2.13 says, Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. The angels glorify God for his coming. How about those shepherds whom they're talking to? Luke 2.20 says, The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. You see how all the human characters surrounding the nativity story, they all had the same response. They all blessed, praised, and glorified God for what was happening. And let's not leave out the wise men whom we'll learn about next week for our Christmas sermon, but it's Matthew 2.11. It says, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. They didn't fall down and worship them or worship Mary. They paid Mary little attention. They fell down and worshiped the child. Because God had revealed to them that his glory had come in the person of Christ, born as a child. This morning, we return to the end of Matthew 1. You can open your Bibles there now, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to finish what we started last week, the birth story of Jesus and we're citing how Matthew presents the coming of the Messiah into the world. And we just want to make sure we get this right. We understand who Matthew is telling us Jesus is. And this is what Matthew is trying to show. From Christ's genealogy to his birth story, meant to complement one another, Matthew is revealing this Jesus is a man. Yes, he's a true man, son of David, son of Abraham, son of Mary. He is a man. He's more than a man. He's at the same time born of God, such that he is the son of God. Literally God's glory incarnate. Emmanuel, God with us. Speaking of that is our special focus for this morning. Last week, we look at this passage, verses 18 through 25. We mostly focused on 18 through 21 and considered the virgin birth itself. It's extremely significant how Jesus came into the world with a human mother, but no human father. God would be the father. But that is not all that's being said in this passage. And really, that's not the greater miracle. When you think about it, God could make anyone virgin born. He could have made you virgin born if he wanted, and that would make you very special. But by itself, that would not make you divine. The first humans, Adam and Eve, were created without human parents. God can create humans out of nothing anytime he wants. That doesn't make you divine, just makes you special. What makes the virgin birth of Jesus so special, though, was the nature of the life being virgin born. It was God was the actual father. The birth of Jesus marked the entrance of God into the world in human form. The virgin birth is a great miracle, of course, but there's a greater miracle here and it's Emmanuel, God with us. That, that's a big deal. Like God would come down and be with us. The virgin birth has its own huge significance. We covered that last time. But the fact that the God of the universe would humble himself, take on flesh, dwell among us, and later die for us, that's the real point to the birth story of Jesus. And it's to so that we turn our attention this morning. We're just going to pick things up. up mostly where we left off. We, we covered verses 18 through 21. We actually referenced verses 24, 25 as well. So the angel tells Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary as your wife. and She will conceive and bear a son. The child is going to be born of the Holy Spirit. He was the name of the child Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. For he will save his people from their sins. But. Matthew reveals that this Jesus will have another name, a second name. And we save this portion of scripture for, for now. And so let's, let's remember and, and learn about this other name now. We're going to pick it up just in verses 22 and 23. Matthew 1, where Matthew goes on to say, Now all this took place to fulfill. What was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child. And shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. This is the first time, but not the last time, that Matthew will use this formula. This took place to fulfill. Matthew, beyond the others, other gospel writers goes to great lengths to connect the dots between the coming of Jesus and Old Testament scripture. So he will always tell us this took place to fulfill. This took place to fulfill over and over again. The coming of Jesus did not occur in a vacuum. He came after hundreds of years of prophetic expectation. Only when you realize this, does it really drive home everything about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And this first fulfillment in Matthew's gospel, that of the virgin birth, maybe says the most about the coming of the glory of God in Jesus. So I want to help you understand this connection really well. No special outline for you this morning. Really just more of a study and a meditation on the magnitude of this promise of Emmanuel. I want to help you to really grasp deeply the the majesty of Emmanuel, God with us. And so to do that, we're going to need to first turn back to where it came from. That's Isaiah chapter 7. So follow along with me. And, and with this case, we'll be in there for a while. I want you to see it for yourself. If you need help, look, grab a pew Bible and go to page 463. Because I want you to really see this for yourself. And appreciate the magnitude of this promise. It's in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah, as you might know, is a heavily prophetic book. Written some 700 years before Christ came, Isaiah opens with five, a five chapter barrage of prophecy, both indicting Judah for their sin, while at the same time, speaking of a coming day of glory. And it's like the introduction. Then you have chapter six, which tells of Isaiah's own famous commissioning, where God is setting him apart as his prophet, as Isaiah beholds the glory of God in that throne room vision. Then chapter 7 through 12, he speaks of things to come concerning Assyria, the threat of the Assyrians. It's like Isaiah's first assignment as a new prophet. But already it's so clear that so much of what he has to say concerns a distant day when a righteous branch will come, the Messiah, and deliver God's people forever. With this in mind, let's see how Isaiah chapter 7 begins. Look at verse 1. It says, now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David saying, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. And unless you really know your Old Testament, you're probably thinking like, okay, who are all these people? What is actually going on here? And I'll just help set things up for you. You first have to remember how Israel split into two nations, the 10 tribes in the north split off collectively referred to as Israel, sometimes Ephraim. And then two tribes remained in the south, just known as Judah. Most often, sometimes the north and the south were at peace. Sometimes they were at war. And right here, they're at war. The king of the north is Pekah. The king in the south is Ahaz. If you don't know much about Ahaz, just know he's pretty much the second worst king Judah ever had. Second King 16.3, for example, says he practiced child sacrifice, burning them on an altar with fire. That's the king. He was a wicked, unbelieving king. And during this time, Rez and the king of Aram, that's just Syria. The, the Syrians, not the Assyrians, just the Syrians and Pekah, the king of Israel. They were invading Ahaz's territory, trying to conquer Jerusalem. So basically it's a two-on-one they're invading. And verse two says, Ahaz and his people were scared. They shook as the trees shaken the wind. We would say today shaking in their boots. They were just afraid. They're all going to die. They're going to be conquered. And because the people were so scared, God intervenes. What does God do? He sends them this brand new prophet, Isaiah. I think it's his first assignment. And he goes to the king, like a verse three. And then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Sheer Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, take care and be calm. Have no fear do not be faint hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remalia because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remalia have planned has planned evil against you saying let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it thus says the Lord God it shall not stand nor shall it come to pass. God's message through Isaiah to the king, the wicked king, by the way, is don't be afraid. They're not going to conquer Judah. This is not the time that you, they will not succeed. These two little fire embers, they're not going to conquer you. And God is going to give him a sign that he knows this word from his new prophet is true, but it's very interesting. If you look down at verse 10, Something happens that's only ever happened, as far as we know, two times in recorded history. That God gives this king a blank check promise. Solomon got the other one. Now Ahaz gets this blank check promise. Look at verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. This is a command. God now is commanding Ahaz to ask for a sign whereby he might show his word is true. This will come to pass. Judah will not be conquered. He's saying, go ahead, ask whatever you want. And notice God says on purpose, make it big, as deep as Sheol, as high as heaven. You know, you think parting of the Red Sea, think bigger. Like whatever you got, God's telling him, ask for a sign. If this were you. What sign would you ask for? I might like to see the ocean drain for a day. Just kind of explore the bottom of the ocean. Be kind of cool. (laughs) But what does Ahaz ask for? Verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Look, he's so righteous, right? (laughs) Wrong. This is a feigned righteousness. This is pretension. This is religiosity. God just commanded him to ask for a sign. This is just disobedience. Ordinarily, we would never test the Lord. But when God tells you, you do it. He's not trusting God. He's not believing in him. He's not a worshiper of Yahweh. He never cares about God's righteousness other than this point. This is clearly pretension. And even though God was speaking to him through the prophet Isaiah, his heart was cold and stubborn rebellion. So how does God respond to this? Verse 13. Verse 13. Then he said, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So Isaiah scolds King Ahaz for his rebellious unbelief. Basically says to him, you may not want a sign, you're going to get a sign. The Lord himself is going to give you a sign. And you don't want that. You don't want God to give you a sign that you weren't asking for. Whenever God does this, it's typically a judgment. Like think 10 plagues of Egypt or Gehazi getting struck with leprosy. You don't want God to force you to receive a sign. You might think Ahaz is is thinking to himself like, I've kind of done it now. This can't be good. Whatever sign is coming can't be good for me. And so what is the sign that God gives him? Well, you'll find some familiar words. The middle of verse 14. This is the sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good. The land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. This is the sign. Now here's the thing. When you think about it, it doesn't seem that big. It's kind of a letdown. This doesn't seem as high as heaven. That there's there's no wow factor to this sign. You might be thinking, but wait, didn't you just say a virgin will be with child? Like that's a big deal, right? But not so fast, because in the Hebrew there are two words that can be translated virgin. One refers to a woman who has never had relations to a man. And if that word were being used here, it would be a promise of a a true, strict virgin birth. But that's not the word used here. Instead, God uses the other word. It simply refers to a young maiden of marriageable age. Likely still a virgin, but it's not a strict promise of a, a virgin birth. And so really when Ahaz heard this, he would have thought some young woman is going to have a kid. And before that child gets very old, these two invading kings will be destroyed. That's good, but it doesn't seem like much of a sign. Women have babies every day. This doesn't seem as high as heaven. You're still probably thinking, but okay, but doesn't verse 14 refer to Jesus? Like that's always the verse we use to talk about Jesus. Matthew uses it. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son. She'll call his name Emmanuel. But you probably saw for yourself from the context, verses 15 and 16, kind of seems like this child is someone who will be born during the reign of King Ahaz. Before he gets very old, these two kings will be destroyed. Sounds like it's meant for that time, right? So what's going on here? Well, in prophecy, there's something we refer to as near and far fulfillment. Near and far fulfillment and the same prophecy. We don't want to be arbitrary with this, but when the context indicates prophecy can be taken to have a near and far fulfillment, an initial partial fulfillment that's legitimate, but also an intended far future, final, full fulfillment. We see that often in the Old Testament, and that is the case here. First, was this prophecy fulfilled in Ahaz's day? Yes, it was through Isaiah's own son. He was the first child, Emmanuel. Go to chapter 8. Verse 1. This is the same context. We're still in this conversation, this incident with the Assyrians. It says Then the Lord said to me, he's talking to Isaiah, Take for yourself a large tablet and write it on ordinary letters. Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah, the priest, and Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam. So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, name him him Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. We're still in the same context. Notice how that promise in verse 4 really repeats the sense of chapter 7, verse 15. That before this child is very old, the Assyrians are going to take out northern Israel and Syria, the two kings that were threatening Judah. This hasn't happened yet. So God tells Isaiah, take this prophecy, this promise, write it on stone. Have witnesses so that when it comes to pass, everyone will know it's true. Isaiah is a new prophet. This is God vouching, validating that Isaiah truly speaks for him. So this sign is a big deal. That before this child, born of a young maiden, this prophetess, before he's very old, the Assyrians are going to take care of Israel and Syria. In fact, God even tells Isaiah to name his son the title of this prophecy. That name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, is simply what... uh, is translated, swift is the booty, speedy is the prey, from verse 2. That's maher shaol hashbaz. This is a prophetic word to the invading, invading Assyrians, telling them to hasten to their conquests and plunder, because they will surely succeed. That God will be with the Assyrians, using them to deliver Judah. By the way, we used to joke, next time you go to Starbucks and they ask what name for the cup, Let's tell them Maher Hashbaz, See how they respond. It's the longest name in the Bible. So there you go. But the point we're making is that it seems like this prophecy of Isaiah 714 of this child was fulfilled in Isaiah's own day by his own son. And indeed, Isaiah had a son. And before he could speak, the Assyrians, lo and behold, invaded and took out Israel and Assyria or Syria. God delivered Judah from her enemies. And Isaiah himself later confirms the role of his children as signs. Look at verse 18. Isaiah later says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah knew that God was just doing something through his children. They would be signs to Israel, to Judah of God's word. So, this promise came to a a near initial fulfillment in Isaiah's own day. But it's not the end of the matter. Because there are clues in this passage that indicate God really did have something more in mind for this prophecy of a a child born of a virgin. Isaiah goes on to say later, chapter 8, how the Assyrians, they'll actually threaten Judah as well. He refers to their land judah's land though as the land of emmanuel down in verse 8 already this this idea or this term emmanuel is now being used in another sense and later he says a a remnant will be preserved why because verse 10 chapter 8 because emmanuel because god is with us it's already using emmanuel in another sense this train of thought carries into chapter 9 of isaiah same context there, God speaks, to, uh, speaks of the region of northern Israel, known as, verse 1, Galilee of the Gentiles. They're the ones who would be invaded by the Assyrians first. and They would be laid low, but not forever. Look at verse 2, chapter 9. One day, God says to them, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. It might sound familiar to you. You should know both Matthew and Luke also quote that verse in reference to the coming of Jesus as he begins his ministry first, where? In Galilee of the Gentiles. But Isaiah goes on to say how God will one day turn their mourning into gladness. How will God do that? He's going to use a child. And in the context, there's there's only one child really going on here. It's that same child from chapter 7, this child born of a virgin. This child shows up again. These famous verses, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. He says right after this, For a child will be born to us. A son will be given us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Remember we're still in the same context and Isaiah now has developed a cluster of prophecies concerning this child, Emmanuel. But these verses in particular make clear that Isaiah's own son could not be the ultimate fulfillment of these words, because this child spoken of here is is clearly none other than the Messiah, whom Isaiah will tell us a lot more about in his book. But even still, bearing these titles of mighty God, eternal father, his name is Emmanuel, God with us, seems like he's not just going to be an ordinary child. It almost sounds like, God himself will come down in the form of this child to deliver his people. But that couldn't be right. That could never happen. And the Jews never seriously anticipated that the Messiah would be God incarnate. That was always a huge stumbling block for them. It was incredulous for them to think the holy God could be born of a child or born as a child. And so they always took Isaiah's words figuratively. We have to be fair. Hindsight is always 20-20. But as you think about it though, how else could this Messiah really be a Prince of Peace? How else could he really uphold the throne of David with justice and righteousness forevermore if he were merely a man? Only the zeal of the Lord of hosts could accomplish this and he would personally. And the sign for when God would bring about this later greater fulfillment was unchanged a virgin will be with child and she will bear a son and speaking of that sign realize the sign of the virgin birth was given to the whole nation and flip back really quick to chapter 7 of Isaiah back to seven thirteen. and you remember when God uh, God through Isaiah was scolding the king he says this in verse 13 Then he said, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Who is God talking to in these verses? If you answer King Ahaz, you're only partially correct because God here changes the object of who he's talking to. Now he's talking to the house of David, which represents the Davidic lineage. And and really, as the king represents the people, he's, he's talking to the nation. And you wouldn't notice this from the English, but verse 13 shifts to the plural. Verse 13, he says, Is it too slight a thing for you, plural, to try the patience of men that you, plural, will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you, plural, a sign. This sign, which comes next is the virgin birth, was not just given to King Ahaz. It was given to you, plural. To the throne, to the kingdom, to the nation. This is a sign for Israel. The whole nation was just as stubborn in their unbelief as King Ahaz. And so God directs this sign to all of them. One day, a greater child will be born and he will rescue God's people. Not just from the Assyrians, but from sin and their own unrighteousness. But that day was far off. These words of of Isaiah would sit dormant for about 700 years, never fully understood. But then one day, one seemingly random day, God sent an angel to this no name town in Galilee of the Gentiles. And he sent him to a virgin named Mary says Luke one twenty seven, Mary was not just a young maiden. She was a virgin in the strict sense of the word. And the angel told her Luke one thirty one says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. Now, now we're talking, right? Notice the magnificence of this child. He'll be great. He'll be called son of the most high. God's going to give him the throne of his father, David. David's been gone for about a thousand years. This is none other than the Messiah. He's going to reign forever. But just one problem. Mary thinks to herself like, but I'm a virgin. How can I have a child? The angel answered though and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. In other words, don't worry about that. The child's father will be God himself. This child will be both human and divine. And Mary thought her virginity posed a problem for this promise. Little did she know though, that her virginity was a requirement. It was a prerequisite for this promise to come true. Now, Luke, being written to a Gentile audience, he doesn't bother connecting the dots between this virgin birth and Isaiah's prophecy. But Matthew is very much the opposite. He wants his Jewish audience to know well that Jesus came in connection to Isaiah's words. You can turn back now to to Matthew chapter 1. And now hopefully appreciate a little more of what it says. Here we have the angel speaking to Joseph this time. You know, back in verse 20, he said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. This child will be the long awaited savior. He will deliver God's people Not just from their physical enemies like Assyria or Rome, but from their spiritual enemies, sin and death. But there's more because this child will have another name as we've been studying. But now Matthew will connect the dots for us. Verse 22, he says right in connection. Now all this, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet. And he quotes Isaiah 7, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And here we go. Matthew tells us without a doubt that Isaiah's prophecy was also speaking of this child, Jesus. In fact, the amazing thing is that God in his wisdom, when he made this promise, used such careful language that it actually can legitimately apply both near and far. Indeed, in Isaiah's own day, these words came to pass in an initial near sense. They came to pass. God's word was true. But God intended that one day, these words would be fulfilled literally. That one day, a literal virgin would be with child, have a son, and he would literally be Emmanuel. God with us. Not just symbolically, here's a name. He would literally be God with us. And that is Jesus. And that's why the virgin birth and coming of Jesus is actually a sign. You may not have thought of that before, but his virgin birth was a sign to Israel, first and foremost, of their salvation. The day of their salvation has finally dawned. Their salvation has come in this child. And guess what? This sign is, is as deep as Sheol and high as heaven. I mean, the virgin birth of actual Emmanuel. How do you not believe in him after all this? I mean, what more does God have to do to convince you that this Jesus really is Lord and who he says he is? I mean, is a 700-year-old prophecy of, of a virgin birth not enough for you? How about the other 350 prophecies Jesus fulfilled in his first coming? But like I said before, this sign, this first fulfillment in Matthew's gospel, maybe says the most about the glory of God in Jesus. And what is most miraculous about this sign is not the virgin birth. It's, it's Emmanuel, as we stated before. It's who this child is. And who is he? He is actually God with us. This child is God incarnate. We say it, but don't take it for granted. Don't lose the the magnitude of that. This is the creator God come down in the form of a child. And if God wanted, like we said before, could have made you a virgin born. But Jesus was also God in human flesh. God come down in the incarnation without shedding any part of his deity, without losing a single attribute. He added to himself a human nature and a human body to dwell among us. This is God finding a way to be with his people that he might die in their place. This is Emmanuel. The apostle John captured the true meaning of Emmanuel in his own words. He starts off with, with the, the majesty of God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. This is, this is the triune God and the divine word, the logos. But then, as you well know, verse 14, this word became flesh. And dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. And John similarly recognized and put in his own way what the coming of Jesus meant. And that was nothing short of the glory of God in human flesh dwelling among us. And as we think about the sign and the significance of Emmanuel, What's left to ask then is just, why? Why would God do this? Why go through all the trouble? And once upon a time, God was with us. Back in the Garden of Eden, God dwelt personally with Adam and Eve. They walked together in the cool of the garden. They lived in the presence of God. God with us. They knew Emmanuel in the beginning. But not for long. They revolted against their creator. They brought sin into the world and God being holy had to put them out. You no longer can be with me. They were defiled and no longer fit to be with God. Emmanuel, God with us was broken. God would no longer be with them. that continues to this day. All are born separate from God, distant, cut off because of our sin. But God in his great love initiated a plan to, to redeem his people and restore them to his presence. The greatest gift he can give is just his glory to bring us back into his presence. That plan started through Israel. God revealed himself to this holy nation. He drew near to them. They got to experience a taste of Emmanuel, the presence of God and the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. God caused his glory cloud to dwell in the tabernacle. He was with them sort of, Always though at arm's length, never intimately. Because until the sin of this people was truly put away, there would be no real lasting eternal fellowship with this God. But God aimed to rectify this as well. God himself would make a way for the sins of his people to be truly erased. That he might be with them forever. They might be with him forever. And this plan is Emmanuel. That's why he came. That God the Father would send God the Son into the world who humbled himself, took on human flesh. Where deity and humanity were joined together in the one person of Christ. And he did this that he might die as a man in our place on the cross. And there on the cross, that God-man experienced all the separation from God we earned by our sin. He's the one who hung there and cried out the cry of the damned. My God, my God, why would you forsake me? In that moment, in some way, God was not with him. God had made Jesus sin. He only knew that the separation of wrath, but he did that, that you might know Emmanuel, God, God with us, not away from us, not us cast out forever into the outer darkness, God with us and being God though, death could not hold him. Jesus rose on the third day and now saves forever. Those who believe in him, those who see the signs and believe and follow him as Lord. And for those who do follow him, though ascended, not with us in, in his bodily presence, but he still leaves us with this promise that he will be with us forever. And are those not the very last words of Matthew's gospel? You can flip to the end of Matthew, verse 28, or chapter 28. How he finishes with this great commission, the very end of verse 20. He says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Realize Matthew starts his gospel with the hope of Emmanuel. God with us in the coming of Jesus And he ends his gospel with its fulfillment. God with us forever in Jesus. He is still with us in the person of Christ. It's true in this age and it's true in the next. And in the next, we will only enter into the fullness of his presence. It's the final two chapters of the Bible that look forward to that day when God's people will only know Emmanuel, God with us to the full. In a way, we can't even truly fathom. We just catch a glimpse in Revelation 21.3. It says this. Speaking of the eternal kingdom. And John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And so you see, this is, This is what Christmas is really about. It's about Emmanuel, the coming, the son of God to dwell with us. Also that we might one day dwell with him in the presence of the lamb and the father forever, free from sin. This is what you were made for. And Christ is your only hope to see that day. That's why Christ is everything. That's why we worship Christ alone. Not Jesus plus this or that, just Christ alone. Now, can I say this? If you're here this morning and you find yourself depressed or dissatisfied with life, if you find yourself aimless or hopeless, there's a good chance you've been making too much of man, probably yourself. There's a good chance you're living life entirely too focused on yourself. But you're never going to find meaning and fulfillment in life from any of the human characters, so to speak. You're only going to find that which your soul longs for in Christ. And so what you need is not more self-esteem. You need more God-esteem. You need to be thinking more highly of God in your life. You need more of the glory of God in your daily life. That's the only thing that puts things into perspective. When you set your mind on the glory of God, it doesn't erase all your troubles. But it does reframe them. It reminds you daily, that you do have a heavenly father in heaven. He cares for you. He will stop at nothing to bring you to his eternal glory. And he will do that through your faith in Christ alone. That's the only way. But that reminds you that you must now reorient your entire life around faith in Christ. Through that, God will preserve you. God will bless you, and he'll give you the, the greatest Christmas gift there is, and that is peace. This child would be called the Prince of Peace for a reason. It's the only peace that he can give, it's peace for the soul. And it comes in knowing Emmanuel, God with us, in Christ. If you find yourself in search for such peace this Christmas season, there's only one character in the nativity scene you need to worry about or focus on, And it's the child, now the risen Savior, Christ Jesus. Go to him by faith and give him the glory. As my favorite Christmas song goes, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Let's praise him now. Now, Father in heaven, we do sing to you glory. Glory to God in the highest for what we have beheld and, and the wonder of Christmas and of the advent of this child, more than a child, this long-awaited, long-promised Savior who came in the world and the greater humility of just taking on human flesh and, and not enjoying the privileges of deity that he might dwell among us. We've beheld just a taste of the mystery of the incarnation this morning. And I pray it captures us. It, it thrills us. It excites us. It creates a sense of wonder in what you're doing with this world. You're not far and distant, Lord. You have come to be with us. And it's only one way though. It's through your son, Christ. Those here who do not know him, draw them near, open their eyes to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, that they would know Emmanuel in their own lives, that by faith they would be brought near, brought into your very presence. And for the rest, Lord, just encourage us to set our mind and our hope on Christ. Fix us on Christ this Christmas season and always, that we would make much of him. From that, we derive all the hope and the joy and the peace we need to endure life's difficulties until that kingdom comes, when we will be with you forever, free from sin and sorrow. We get to taste and and enjoy that now as we make our lives about Emmanuel. So give us Christ, and may we give him glory in return. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.